Welcome to Seeking Scripture Deep Diving Bible Study. I'm Christy Jordan, and I want to help you develop a firsthand relationship with the whole Word of God. For links and graphics mentioned in my podcast, please visit the corresponding post on SeekingScripture.com. May Yahweh bless the reading of His Word. If you're new here, please begin in my Genesis study rather than beginning in the last quarter of the book. The Father, in His wisdom and love, began His Word in Genesis, and in order to know Him, so should we. Good morning, siblings. Today's readings are Matthew 5 through 6. Oh, y'all, you might want to grab a cup of coffee, take a deep breath, and strap yourself into your chairs today, because if you don't, you may end up needing to be peeled off the ceiling after we're done reading Messiah's words. Apologies for the lengths of my notes in Matthew, but in my defense, if I had time, they'd be four times longer. Rabbit trails. Oh, one more thing. Before you read these notes, know that I love you. And I mean that. First off, this whole blessed are the poor thing. Matthew 5, 3 reads, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Most agree that this is referring to someone who is humble. Whew, that was easy. Moving on to Matthew five thirteen, we read, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Background information. In this time frame, when salt was used up or no longer good for anything, it was used on roads and pathways. This kept weeds from growing over the roads, thus the reference of being trampled under people's feet. In Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16, we read, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Yahweh does not create light only for us to put it away. He wants us to shine that light throughout the world, but we should seek Him in all our ways in order to be that light. Matthew 5.16 In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. An excellent cross-reference to read on this is James 2, verses 14 through 26. That passage reads, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, also faith apart from works is dead. Works? But we aren't saved by our works. Christ, are you trying to sell us a works-based faith? Nope. No one ever said you were saved by your works, but they did say that your works would show where your heart lies. Bad trees do not bear good fruit. Sadly, this whole accusation of trying to be saved by works excuse has become the mantra of people who seek to justify not obeying the commandments. And in order to justify themselves when relying on such a flimsy excuse, they must win others over to this way of thinking as well. This is how we end up with millions of people living in a dead faith, according to that James Cross reference above. The love and adoption of the Father provides a wellspring of life and causes us to produce beautiful fruit. Ready for the heavy lifting? Take a deep breath. You might want to take one more. (laughs) Have you ever heard that statement, Messiah fulfilled the law so that we don't have to? What does Messiah say about this? We read Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Did you catch that? First, he's saying, don't think I've come to do this thing. And then he said, I have not come to do this thing. And then he adds, I've come to do something that is definitely not this thing. He states twice that we are not to think he has come to get rid of something, and yet we read it as meaning exactly what he says it absolutely does not mean. Still, most people read this verse as, Don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to abolish. Messiah said this because he knew that some would try to lead us astray on this topic. This is a good verse to remember for many reasons. Hear this. Know this. Take it to heart. Messiah always reinforced the Father's word. He never contradicted it in any way or opposed it in any way. His teachings complete our understanding of the scriptures. Now, let's circle back to Matthew 5, verses 18 through 19. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. These verses really don't need much explanation. The Father and the Son made this crystal clear. 
Nothing will pass from the law, which are Yahweh's teachings, commandments, and instructions on how His people are to live, until heaven and earth pass away. And on top of that, there's a pretty stern warning for anyone who teaches others that any of God's commandments have been done away with. That reads, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Take a moment to think over that statement again. Now, why do we read Matthew five seventeen through 20 as if Messiah is stating the opposite of what Messiah is stating? Because for many of us, generations ago, it was ingrained in us to go against our logic, and through time and repetition, we have learned to do just that. There are a few verses in the Bible like this. For example, what's the first thing a child asks when taught the Ten Commandments? Why don't we keep Sabbath, the fourth commandment, on the seventh day? The response may be, because we don't do that anymore. We do it this way instead. Or sometimes we'll be met with, because Jesus rose on Sunday, or because Jesus is our Sabbath rest now. Both of these are red herrings, as they do not abolish or alter the fourth commandment in any way. But when spoken with authority, as if they are valid reasons, and repeated enough times by enough people, the child will acquiesce and eventually grow up to make those same statements with the same sense of authority. This is part of the conditioning which teaches us that it's okay to do things our way instead of Yahweh's way. I call this a Burger King faith. Have it your way. Side note, in case anyone feels offense rising up in them right now. Number one, that was not my intent. And number two, you can go to church any day of the week and still keep Sabbath. I have friends who honor the Sabbath and go to Sunday church. If you have a good Bible-believing church, go every time the doors are open. In fact, many of our Jewish brethren, who are staunch keepers of the Sabbath, have their services on Sunday in order that they may rest on the Sabbath. So I want to reiterate, you do not have to give up Sunday church to keep the Sabbath, and I am not suggesting that you do. Please read that sentence again. I do not want to divide us, but I do want us to see what Yahweh says and what Messiah says. I want us to get our truth from the source, and when tradition contradicts truth, I want us to choose truth over tradition. Regardless of where you stand on this, I don't need you to agree with me because I'm not the source of truth. The Father is. I love you and I'll lock arms with you any day as my cherished brother and sister. Now, I also realize that a majority of people today feel Sabbath was abolished. And we will discuss that again later when we put key passages back into context. In fact, within three months, we will have read every verse of the Bible. So if Yahweh, who has told us that he does not change, decided at some point that he was going to change his commandments, we will read it. And if Messiah, who taught that we will be keeping Sabbath when he returns and in the millennium, and that he didn't come to change Yahweh's commandments, decided to change his mind and contradict his father, we will read that too. In the meantime, Pay attention to this passage very carefully before accusing Messiah of doing away with what Yahweh has put into place. He himself specifically tells us that he came to do no such thing. In large part, it is our contradicting Messiah's words, actions, and intent 
that prevents our Jewish brethren from being able to accept him as the Messiah. Because they know scripture, and they know that a Messiah would never contradict or undermine the Father. The time is drawing near, and we simply cannot afford to misrepresent the Messiah lest we fit this description. Matthew 5.19 Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Side note, we aren't going to argue Sabbath. We never have, and I hope we never will. In all things, search the scriptures, pray to the Father, and know that He is the source of truth. When He has spoken, our words are a poor substitute. Yahweh's word is truth. Anything outside of that is just commentary. And that includes my notes. Now let's circle back to my initial point, lest it be lost. Why do we read Matthew 5, 17-20 as if Messiah is stating the opposite of what Messiah is stating? As I said, for many of us, generations ago, it was ingrained in us to go against our logic, and through time and repetition, we have learned to do just that. If you tell someone that the Bible says something enough times, whether it actually does or not, they will believe you. How many of each animal did Noah take into the ark? Remember when we thought the answer was two? All of that changed when we read the text for ourselves with the blinders down. As believers, do we recognize that Yahweh is right? Or are we seeking to be right? Moving on, not to beat a dead horse, but I'm about to do just that. Most of us are reading an English translation from a Greek manuscript of the book of Matthew. This book has also been found in Hebrew. In the Greek, the word fulfill that we see in Matthew 5.17 is pleru, which means to make perfect, carry out, or cause to abound. Let's look at another passage we've just read in which the same word pleru is used. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. That's Matthew 3, verses 13 through 15. The word translated to fulfill here is also pleru. In this case, we correctly see Messiah as setting the example for baptism. What we do not see is Messiah being baptized so that no one else ever needs to be baptized. (laughs) The fact is, the text is clear as a bell, but we had to remove the filters that have been put in place along with the things that we've been programmed to see. The training of going against reasoning and logic when the truth is in front of us in order to see that. So we've established that Messiah didn't come to do away with Yahweh's law, but to show us how to live it out, to set the example of doing so. Then what of all this talk about the law being nailed to the cross? (sighs) That's not what the Bible says either. But again, if you tell most people that the Bible says something enough times, they will eventually believe you. Here's what the Bible actually says about that in Colossians 2.14. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. 
the debt for our sins is paid. He paid the ticket. If you get a speeding ticket and pay that ticket, does that mean you can speed from then on out? No, it means your ticket is paid. Now you're free to do, as Messiah said in John 8, 11, Go now and sin no more. A common refrain is, but it's impossible not to sin. So should we just give up and not even try? Of course not. When we set our minds to follow after Messiah, if we stumble, he will turn to us and help us to rise again. That is grace. Now, in my written notes, I have listed an extensive list of verses in which the law, think of it as the Ten Commandments, is upheld in the New Testament. So I invite you to read all of those. Let's talk about the dueling sets of laws. Now, it's important to note here that there are dueling laws being spoken of in the New Testament. One is the law of Yahweh, and one is the traditions of men, which were held up as equal or even more important than Yahweh's laws, sometimes known as fence laws today. They are even called the law. I've talked about those fence laws at length before, so I'll not do that again today. We are going to learn more about them in a few chapters when we see it in action. Messiah spends the next few sections advising on the subjects of anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and how to treat your enemies. Many people read his words and think that he is changing the law or relaxing the commandments. Let's talk about that. In Matthew 5, verses 21 through 24, we read, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. Most of us are well aware of the commandment not to murder. It comes in at number six on the Big Ten by how we count them today. Messiah states this commandment and then expands on it. What he's saying is, now this is my paraphrase, you've been told not to murder, but carrying around anger and hate in your heart is murder as well. It's not enough to just not physically murder someone. This commandment is a heart issue. And if your heart is not right, you can be breaking this with or without any bodies to show for it. Moving on to Matthew 5, 27, we read, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So you don't actually commit adultery, but you dream of doing it? That's just as bad. Again, Messiah is elevating the commandment keeping from a check-the-box type obedience to a deeper heart issue. Now, Matthew 5, 31-32, we read, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this was addressing a sin that had become become common in the day, and which we spoke about back in Deuteronomy. 
There's evidence to support that this was a pattern of behavior in which a man wanted to stay within the law, but still wanted to entertain multiple females. So he would, quote, marry one for a day or two, divorce, then, quote, marry another, and eventually marry one or more of them again in whatever order he chose. They were abiding by the commandments on a technicality, but clearly the heart was elsewhere. We see the same pattern when it comes to condemning the swearing of oaths, where Messiah instructs us to let our yes be yes and our no be no. If we are a person of honor who follows in the way our Father instructs us, this will be enough. In Matthew 5, verse 38, we see the famous quote, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. First of all, so many people say this is biblical wisdom. Note that Messiah is not in any way suggesting we follow this advice. This is the context that we're missing here. Rather, he is offering a righteous alternative. Let us look at the original text this concept is coming from and put it into context. We're reading Exodus 21, verses 22 through 27. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes his eye, the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Note that in these two cases, grave crimes were taking place. Men were working together to attack pregnant women. Others were abusive to slaves in their households. If you missed when we went over slavery and the standards which Torah requires Hebrews to adhere to with regards to treatment, make sure you catch it on the next go-round. However, in Messiah's time, we see that men are taking personal vengeance over small slights. In the time of Moses, there was a justice system in place in which judges and elders, well-versed in the Torah, oversaw punishments and judged righteously. Here, we have a free-for-all, wherein a man might personally demand the death of another for being humiliated or slapped in public. We can equate this to honor killings in our time, in terms of their severity being unmatched to the perceived offense. Again, people were using the scriptures as a means of justifying their actions, but their heart's intent was far from the Father. Moving on. In Matthew 5.43, the verses about loving your enemy are refuting common culture of the time, not Yahweh's instructions. We will go on into loving your enemy and your neighbor. They go hand in hand in future notes. Here is what we're reading, though. Messiah is not doing away with the law. He is elevating it, filling it up, taking it to a higher level. He is showing us that obeying commandments is not enough. If we go around hating people and lusting in our minds and seeking vengeance, it's not about a checklist. It's about the state of our hearts. We must set our hearts right. Moving on in my notes, Matthew 5, 47 and Matthew 6, 7 both compare the behavior of Yahweh's chosen people to that of the Gentiles. 
This is a gentle reminder that the early Christians or believers were Jews, not Gentiles. Matthew 5.48 presents such a problem for some, and this is where they jump off the Jesus train and declare that he must have been doing away with the law because they think he crosses the line of possibility with this statement. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Y'all, this is the standard to strive for. This is Yahweh's standard for us. How many parents have told their kids, When you grow up, there's very little chance you'll be successful, and you'll probably break a lot of laws. So just know that going into it and prepare yourself for jail. No, we set a standard for them. When you grow up, if you work hard and make sure to be a good contributing citizen, you'll make the world a better place and find fulfillment and happiness for yourself too. As the best parent in the history of the universe and beyond, Yahweh set the standard. Further, he knew he could obtain it because he had plans all along in sending his own son to show us how to do it and his own spirit to guide us. So, in refutation to all the naysayers, let's see what Yahweh says. Ezekiel 36, 26-27 Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This is exactly what he promises us, a helping hand, a guiding spirit, a new heart that will cause us to walk in his ways, to want to walk in his ways. But now here is the gut check question, y'all. Do I have a desire to obey or am I looking for an excuse or a way around it? This is our fork in the road. Whose standard do we choose to live by? Because the Holy Spirit is not going to indwell within us in order to enable us to live by the world's standards. Matthew 6.22 may sound strange at first, but with a little understanding of the culture and context of the time, it becomes clear. It reads, The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Messiah is referencing a Hebrew idiom or saying that was common at the time and still used today. To have a good eye means to have a generous spirit. To have a bad eye means to have a stingy spirit. A rabbi of the time may say, if you give an offering, make sure you do it with a good eye, meaning with a truly generous heart, not spitefully or resentfully. Whew. Okay, that was a lot of information today. I'm still reeling just from typing it. Please do not take my word for anything. Do not take a pastor's word for anything. Do not take a teacher's word for anything. In all things, search the scriptures, pray to the Father, and know that He is the source of truth. Anything outside of His word is just commentary. Test everything. Hold tight to what is good. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 We are saved by grace alone. Obedience is not the root of our salvation. It is the fruit. May Yahweh bless the reading of His Word. I love y'all. Bye-bye.